first day of a brand new series on the Lord's Prayer that we are simply calling the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Our creative department worked overtime on that one. And uh, so we are uh, very thrilled to be looking at this prayer over the course of the next six weeks because this prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, is perhaps the most uh, famous of all prayers in the Bible. Many of you have it memorized and have memorized it since you were a child. Uh, and as we read it today in the TNIV, many of you are going to say, that's not the Lord's Prayer because you memorized it in the King James as I did, okay? Uh, but So it's a very, very familiar prayer. Uh, communities, church communities, the body of Christ have been saying this prayer corporately as part of their worship services for uh, thousands of years. And uh, I just, I just want to say right up from the very beginning that when we study this prayer, uh, we are on holy ground. Uh, that this is not something to uh, take lightly, but I believe that this prayer is so rich in meaning. And it's not just theological meaning, but what we'll find out today is that this prayer calls us to something. It challenges us to something. It affects our Life And so uh, we are going to spend the next six weeks uh, studying the Lord's Prayer. And this is, in fact, our Christmas series. And uh, I went to Home Depot right after Halloween. And their full spread of Christmas stuff was out. And I thought, we're going to start Advent a little bit early since the commercial Christmas wants to make the biggest bang for their buck during Christmas. Uh, we're going to make the biggest theological bang for our buck and uh, start our Advent series two weeks early. So Advent isn't for another couple weeks weeks, uh, but this is our Christmas series. It will take us all the way to the end of the year, okay? So let me give you one initial observation about the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to read the scripture a little bit later on, but one initial observation is that despite all the differences in the world that Christ lived and the world that we live, uh, there is something that's fundamentally the same, and that is human nature. Uh, That is us as humans, whether we have all the technology and the development and the cities, or or whether it's more of an ancient culture that is so uh, very different from ours, I would argue that while it's different, it's not all that far removed because in, our, in Jesus' world and in our world, uh, it was full of injustice, hunger, malice, and evil. Isn't it interesting then that when Jesus goes to teach his disciples what to pray, he taught them to, to say a prayer that cries out for justice, for bread, forgiveness, and deliverance. And what I want to say to you just initially is that this prayer is not just a model for us to pray. It isn't something that we just kind of come to, we read, we sort of uh, just sweep over it and we say, oh, that's a great thing. I should model my prayer after that, or I should simply say this prayer and repeat it. There's great value in that. Uh, But this is far beyond just a model for how we are to pray. Uh, It's not just something that we say in liturgy without thinking about the words. What this prayer does is it reveals to us who Christ is. This prayer teaches us about the nature of God. It has something very real to do with our world. As we live in a world of injustice and hunger and malice and evil, and then we're taught to pray for justice and bread and healing and deliverance and forgiveness, what we realize is this prayer is not just something that kind of sits up here as a model for us, but it comes into the very roots of our lives and challenges the way in which we live. 
Okay, so just one initial observation is that this isn't just a prayer to kind of say, and oh, I said that, and now we're done. This prayer absolutely makes a difference. And my goal during this series is to unpack this prayer and help us to truly understand the words that we say. And uh, there'll be some weeks that we participate in saying the prayer together. Uh, There'll be some weeks where we are going to encourage you and inspire you to worship in ways that maybe you're not used to. And I I talked about uh, last week the value of art, the beauty of art, and how we can use art in our worship. And we're going to explore some of those things during this series. Uh, But today is mostly just an introduction and getting a handle on what does it mean to pray our Father who is in heaven, okay? Uh, So this is by way of introduction and just kind of set the tone for the rest of the series as we walk through this. Uh, But my goal is really to unpack these words so that we know what we're saying when we say them and so that they can make a tremendous difference in our life. And so I encourage you to plug in. I encourage you to give God's word your full attention and allow God to speak in your life, not only today, but over the next six weeks. Uh, You don't want to miss a a week over the next six weeks. And if you're going on Christmas break, just cancel it uh, and plan to be right here at Emmaus Road. Uh, Thanksgiving break, cancel it. We want you here uh, as we go through this. And if you happen to miss it, we do podcast all the messages so you can go back and catch up. Okay, so let's read the Lord's Prayer. It's uh, found in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, I want to read, there's a great section on prayer that leads up to the Lord's Prayer, but I want to just read the prayer itself. Uh, In Matthew, there's another version in Luke, but we're going to kind of stay and camp out here in Matthew chapter 6 for the series. Um, But this is what it says, and, and this time, rather than having us say it together, again, I want you just to listen to these words and allow them to sink in, and we're going to talk about it, okay? So here's what it says, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, say this. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the prayer begins, our Father in heaven. It's as though that the first thing that Jesus wants his disciples to know and to realize is that God is their Father. That God is not sort of this impersonal force, that God is not just this thing out there and up there, but God it can be accurately described as their Father. Now, the Greek word that's used here, and many of you know this, but the Greek word here is the word Abba, and Abba denotes sort of this intimacy, this familiarity. It pictures God not only as a father, but what as you and I would call a dad or a daddy. And so when the disciples see the life of Jesus and how he's acting and how he's praying, and they, they come to him in curiosity saying, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And then and, and Jesus responds back by saying, this then is how you should pray. The first thing, the very first line out of the gate is you should pray and you should address God as our father, our 
Abba. So it's easy to think in our world, and I think in the world in which Jesus lived, that God is sort of this impersonal force that's just sort of out there. He doesn't really, uh, we, we can't really get to know him. We can't really touch him. He's sort of this, this impersonal thing in our universe. But the other kind of way that we tend to see God is that God is sort of this Greek God figure in which he, he creates the world, but then leaves it all to its own. And he just lets it go and says, okay, I've created it. And now I'm not going to touch it and I'm just letting it run its course. And many would say that as this impersonal God lets the world run its course, we're going straight down the toilet, right? And so Jesus, though, wants us to grab a hold of. And when we pray, realizing that we are not praying to an impersonal force, we are not praying to a God who has created us and then left us on our own, but rather we are praying to a God whom we can accurately call father or daddy. Right? That there is this sort of greatness to God, this mystery to God, and yet at the same time, we can call him by one of the most familiar names, Abba, this intimacy, this familiarity. And so this is the God that we pray to, one who is familiar and yet powerful, one who, is, who has created all the universe, who can do anything, and, and yet finds himself uh, to be loving and caring. Powerful and caring equals trustworthy. Powerful and caring equals trustworthy. This is the God that we pray to, our Father in heaven. And the truth is, is that that Jesus teaching the disciples to call God Father absolutely revolutionized the way that the disciples understood God, right? Because all the time, and, and, and they were... They had never thought about addressing God in such a personal and such an intimate way. And yet Jesus in the New Testament consistently refers to God as the Father. And so while the word and the idea of Abba is then refashioned in a way that the disciples have never understood before, the reality is, is that this word Abba, this idea of God as Father, has a much richer history. This isn't the first time that it appears. This is, it's a revolutionary idea. It kind of changes the way the disciples will understand and address God. But at the same time, it has a deeper history if we go back into the Old Testament. And so the idea of God as father first appears early on in the narrative of the gospel in the book of Exodus. In chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, where Moses goes to the Pharaoh and he says, Thus says Yahweh. Yahweh is the Old Testament name for God. Thus says God, Israel is my son and my firstborn, so let my people go that they may serve me. Now, some of you may be familiar with the setting of this verse, but if you're not familiar with it, let me just give you a little bit of context. This conversation between Moses and Pharaoh actually happens within the context of of not only the book of Exodus, but the Exodus story. In other words, God has raised up a nation called Israel, which he plans to use in order to bless the entire world. And this nation then finds themselves in the book of Exodus, enslaved to Egypt and in desperate need of rescue. And so Moses is raised up as their 
freedom bringer. He, he's the one who will approach Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of Egypt, and call for Israel's freedom. These are the people of God, and you need to let them go, give them freedom from slavery so that they might come out and worship me more fully as my people and inherit the land that has been promised to them. And so in doing so, in this conversation, as Moses is raised up as the one who will bring freedom to all of Israel, he declares by hearing from God and speaking on behalf of God, he declares that God sees Israel as a son. And therefore, he is Israel's father. So while it's a revolutionary idea in the New Testament, it's not a brand new idea because we see it popping up in the Old Testament. Are you with me so far? Israel is my son. God is their father. And so for Israel to call God Abba was to hold on to the hope of liberty, that they would one day be moved from slavery to sonship. They're in this, they're in desperate need of rescue, enslaved by a power greater than themselves, looking to Moses, the freedom bringer. And Moses said, God sees the nation of Israel as their son. And so let them be freed so that they can move from slavery to sonship. It's this powerful sort of imagery between God as the father and Israel as the son. And so this idea of calling God Father is not just a way of expressing intimacy. It is not just a way of expressing familiarity. It has roots that are far deeper than that. Are you with me? And so for Jesus then in the New Testament, when teaching his disciples how to pray, he teaches them to address God as Abba or Father. It's a way of saying to the disciples, get ready for the new exodus. Get ready for the new exodus because there's a brand new world coming and it's coming through Christ. It's not just this, this proper title. It's not just this familiarity. It is a way of saying, get ready for the new exodus. Hope is real, Jesus is saying, and it is available to you today through Christ. In other words, praying to God, praying to God, our Father in heaven is not just a way of formally addressing God. It is not just an intimate address to our God, uh, to our God who is in heaven, the God of the universe. It is a way of standing in the middle of darkness and declaring that there is light, right? I mean, in, in, in Israel, the Exodus, they find themselves slavery, all in slavery, all around the world is dark. Everything appears hopeless, and yet they are God. God's son and God is their father. It is a way of saying that liberty and hope are real. They're made available to me today. It's a way of standing in the darkness and declaring there is light. It's a way of standing in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a situation that is absolutely hopeless and saying that despite the hopelessness that surrounds me on every side, I declare on the truth of God that he is my father, that I am his son, that there is hope. This thing goes much deeper than just this way of addressing God. And so our Father in heaven, hope exists despite all the evidence to the contrary. It's a way of living in chains and yet declaring freedom and hope that are possible right here and right, day, right now, today. Now this week, I was listening to the radio and uh, I just fall asleep to music and so I listen to talk radio, Right. And uh, so I'm listening to this talk radio station, and uh, there are two preachers on there that are taking calls uh, from callers, questions from callers, and answering them. And one of the callers uh, asked a loaded question 
about the, the end of the world, right? The end times. Uh, isn't that what we all want to know about? And so this question was, was framed on, on kind of what is the correct view? Is it, is it uh, you know, will the church be raptured kind of pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation? And if you have no idea what that means, Lord bless you. You're ahead of the rest of us, okay? Uh, so they're, they're kind of asking about when will the church be raptured and in the middle of the you know, tribulation, before it ever happens, after it happens, all these kinds of things. And um, the answer that came back was, from these two preachers, they said, if, if a gospel is preached in which the church is raptured at any time but before the tribulation, then it is not a gospel of hope because our hope lies in the possibility of escape. Those are his exact words. And I thought to myself, and I was so saddened by that because in that moment, hope for today was reduced to escape tomorrow. And let me say to you, church, that regardless of what you believe about pre-trib and mid-trib and post-trib or the rapture itself, any hope for today that is reduced to escape tomorrow is no hope at all. And this idea of addressing God as our father is a way of, of saying that even in the middle of this darkness of my life, there is light. That even in the midst of the chaos of my life, that there is hope because God is my father and I am his son. And so let us not reduce hope to merely being patience or merely being escape. But let us face hope head on and realize that because of Christ and our sonship that is in Christ, hope is made available to us right here, right now, today, that freedom is real. Hope is available to us. And so Jesus, by teaching the disciples to call God our Father, is, is bringing them back to the Exodus and says it's not only a way of express, expressing intimacy with God, but it is a commitment to God and to his kingdom. Right? It's a way of committing to God that I am on the side of the kingdom of God, which is why the very next line in the prayer that we'll talk about next week is that Jesus teaches him, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. Right? The very next line is to pray that God's kingdom and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's this way of teaching them, and it's a commitment to God and his kingdom. Jesus is pointing them to a brand new world where the tyrant's grip is broken and that they are fully free. Do you get the point? It's not just about intimacy. It's about revolution. It's not just about familiarity. It's about hope. Are you with me now? This is good news, church. And this way, praying this prayer is, is not just having the boldness to walk into a room and say to God, hey, dad, but rather it's the risky revolutionary question of saying to God, God, may I become your apprenticing son. It's a way, in essence, in essence, it's a way of saying, I am aligning myself with the kingdom of God. I'm signing on to this reality called God's kingdom by calling him my father. And the kingdom of God is what Jesus's life was all about, of course. The kingdom of God is, is sort of this invisible thing that's made visible through the life of Christ. In our world, in our culture, there are all kinds of kingdoms at work. Did you know that? 
that in our culture right here, right now, today, there are all kinds of kingdoms that are, are vying and, and are pushing for your allegiance. Right? For example, let me, let me give you just a couple of examples of kingdoms that are at work. First of all, we have the corporate kingdom. The kingdom that says that my, my productivity is what matters most and then my ability to climb the corporate ladder and make a name for myself and then that I I would sacrifice as I pledge allegiance to this kingdom the corporate kingdom then everything else kind of comes under the bus so to speak right I'll do everything that I can in order to climb the corporate ladder in order to make a name for myself in order to find myself productive and and uh, efficient and all of these sorts of things like in productivity and efficiency is of course uh, valuable and of course we are to be good stewards of our time. Uh, Being Christian is not just being unproductive, right? But when we pledge allegiance to that kingdom, then everything else falls in line as being secondary. And so my ability to climb the corporate ladder and make a name for myself is what becomes most important in life. Now, others in our culture would pledge allegiance to the economic kingdom, where my accumulation of wealth by any means is most important in this life, that I need more stuff. I need to make more money in order to buy more stuff. And it's sort of, and I, in order to make more money, I need to work more. And a lot of times, the economic kingdom and the corporate kingdom work hand in hand. Do you see that? I have to work more and more, which will make more money. And to make more money is accumulation of more things. But in order to have more things, I need to make more money. In order to make more money, I have to work more. And what praying to God and saying, our father, is a way of saying, I don't sign on to the corporate kingdom or the economic kingdom. Praying to God, our Father, in essence, or by implication saying, I am also your son or your daughter, is a way of saying that I pledge my allegiance to your kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is altogether different. It's a kingdom where we are blessed, not by having more, but by giving away, not by being first, but by being last. It is a kingdom where all are equal, regardless of race or economic status. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, but it's growing. It's like yeast in bread, seemingly insignificant, but affecting everything around it. And so saying to God and praying to him, our father is a way of saying, I'm signing on to this thing called the kingdom of God. And this, of course, has all kinds of implications, right? The the first implication would be that this is a corporate thing. It's a corporate prayer. Jesus tells us to pray our Father, right? It's our Father. So it's this way, it's this corporate way. This prayer is for us. It is though Jesus is saying by teaching this prayer, he wants us to realize that the body of Christ is one. There is no division. There may be different expressions. There may be different denominations. There may be different organizations. And some would say all those things need to go away. Just as a side note, I'm generally in favor of those, but realizing that those things that seem to uh, keep us distinct from one another do not separate us from one another. These are not lines of separation. They're lines of distinction in expression of our faith. There is only one body of Christ. We are praying our Father together. And this body of Christ together, that anyone who has called on the name of Jesus and placed their faith in him, the body of believers... They have a role in the world, and that is to be God's kingdom bearers, right? As we're praying our Father and signing on to the kingdom of God, it's not just something that I myself am doing for myself. 
And sometimes we've churned salvation into that, haven't we? We've churned salvation purely into this thing that says it is for me. It, it, it gets me the Jesus card out of hell and that's it. But salvation, again, is far deeper than that. And it's not just personal, but it's corporate. Because as we come to know God, we place ourselves in the body of Christ. We place ourselves among a body of believers that are called then together, despite our distinctions and our differences, to work for the kingdom of God in the world. And that is why we, can, we, we sometimes on Sunday mornings pray for other churches because we know it's not about Emmaus Road. And that's why sometimes as a pastor, I have to check myself and make sure that I can not only pray for the growth of other Christian churches, but celebrate when they do grow whatever is going on in our own community. Because it's not about us. It's about the body of believers, the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us to pray our father. It's a corporate thing. But that isn't to say that there isn't a personal dimension to it. Right? I mean, we've kind of gone too far and made it only personal, and I want us to realize the corporate nature of it, but that's not in lieu of the personal nature to it because the life of God doesn't just offer a sort of this new pattern or new depth of spirituality to us, although that's part of it. The, the life of Jesus in the kingdom of God is about the defeat of evil once and for all. And for, for us who follow Jesus, that means personal risk and vocation. Right? The fishermen become fishers of men. The vocation, the, the, the savior of the world whose vocation was to be a carpenter eventually is nailed to the wood of a cross. The carpenter is nailed to wood. The fishermen become fishers of men. It's this way of saying that as we enter into this kingdom, God takes our vocation and refashions it so that it can be used in the kingdom of God. Calling God Father is not just a comfort or reassurance. It certainly is that, but it also involves personal challenge. That is to say that calling God Father and our Father requires something of us. And if you're here today and you haven't, met yet, yet, you haven't yet made a decision to follow Christ and you're sort of exploring Christianity, I don't want to mislead you by saying that, the, that life with God doesn't require anything of you. Jesus gives this, this, this great gift in himself where he dies for us that we may have life, that we may experience the presence and the goodness of God in our life. But it is a gift that once we receive it, we realize that it requires something of us, that it calls us to something, that in, in many ways it calls us to something far greater than ourselves where we once were so narrowly focused what's important here and right now and for me and all of these things when we come to know Christ and we're, we're called to that we accept this great gift and we realize that it requires something of us it's as though our, our, our view is broadened our perspective is made wider and we realize that this is not just about me it's about me being used for something far beyond myself it's about God using me working in me and through me to bring the kingdom of God to express the kingdom of God to other people who are all around me. And so it's this vocation and God saying, what are you doing now and how can I refashion that so that you can go and use it for the kingdom of God? This ties in well with last week's message where we talked about business, right? And how we can be people of business but be concerned primarily about the kingdom of God, not just the bottom line and the finances. And so this thing is corporate, it's personal. It requires something of us. 
where we commit no longer to hold our allegiance to the economic kingdom or the corporate kingdom or other kingdoms of the world, but we live both personally and corporately according to the kingdom of God, where everything is upside down. But what we get in return in life is far greater than whatever we have given up. For we have a help in the midst of trouble. We have a father who loves us. We are made the son of the creator of the universe. And we are given this vocation where once our life was without purpose, we now have a a goal and a purpose. And even in the mundaneness of our job on Monday morning, we have this purpose that infuses us. So whatever we're called and whatever is required for us to give up, what we receive is far greater. And isn't that just like the kingdom of God? That when we give away, when we give of ourselves, that which we receive back is far greater than that which we ever gave up. And so entering the kingdom of God is itself an illustration of what the kingdom of God is like. And so the personal nature says of, the, of this prayer says that it requires something of us. Which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus calling God Father once more. Jesus, having lived his life doing miracles and proclaiming the reality of this kingdom, that, that did not, the reality of a kingdom that does not belong to Caesar, has found himself in a political upheaval, right? If you read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus gets in trouble politically because he's declaring that a kingdom exists that does not belong only to Caesar. So while some have worshipped him, others want him dead. And he knows where the, he is headed toward death. He knows what he must do in order to bring salvation to the world. It is, it is a hard pill to swallow, sort of speak. And yet the night he goes to the cross, he prays in a garden. Everything in his life is dark. And what does he do? He prays and he says, Father, is this your way? Father, is there another way? Father, if there is, let this cup pass from me. The apprentice son, Jesus Christ, is checking in with his father, whom he's made a commitment to live for the kingdom of God, to see how he is doing in accomplishing his will. This prayer then stands for us, not simply as a model to pray, but much deeper than, than that reveals to us the very reason why we pray. Stick with me. Stick with, stick with me. Stay plugged in. Because many of us would express a desire for a better prayer life, right? I mean, if you're here today and you've been following Christ and you're a person of faith, my guess is that you would take a look at your prayer life and say, I need to do better. And my guess is that oftentimes you just try to do it all on your own and you're sort of fuzzy on the reason why we pray, right? And you just kind of say, man, I need to do it. I need to have the discipline to do it. And so you make all sorts of commitments. You make all sorts of goals. You write them down in your journal. You do really great for about three weeks. And then all of a sudden you find yourself not doing so great. And so then you feel guilty and you say, man, I need a better prayer life. What this prayer does is not just give us sort of this, this truth and this theological idea of what it means to call God Father, but it reveals to us because Jesus is calling God Father once again in the Garden of Gethsemane, why we pray. We pray to demonstrate our willingness to be used by God. You want to be used by God? You want to see him work in your life and through your life and you find yourself not praying? 
I wonder if God wants to really know if you're willing. It's a way of God's, it's a way of saying to God, here's my heart and I truly desire to be used by you. We pray in order to demonstrate our willingness to be used by God. Father, not my will, but yours. We pray in order to seek his direction for the next step. Right? Father, is this the way? Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think it is. The best I can tell, this is the direction that you have for me. But let me come to you, addressing you as Abba, Father. Is this for sure what you want me to do? We pray for direction. We pray to show our commitment to God. We pray to see light in the midst of darkness. You find yourself in a dark place and you don't see any light around you. You don't see any hope around you. You don't see any help around you. We pray in order to get in tune with the kingdom of God that in the midst of darkness, we might be able to see the light. Anyone that comes to me and says, in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of this difficult, this, this difficult thing, in the midst of this impossible situation, and they tell me about this horrible thing that they're expressing and going on in their life, and yet they say to me, but let me tell you all the ways, no matter how small, that I see God at work, I know right off the bat that that's a praying person. Because we pray in order to see the light in the midst of the darkness. We pray in order to see the activity of God when it seems invisible to us. We pray in order to open ourselves up to whatever he would have for us next. And we pray in order to be filled with hope for the next season, the next challenge around the corner, the next victory. Whatever comes, whatever is around the corner for us, We pray to position our heart for that. If we wait until we get to the corner, it will be far more difficult than if we had been praying all along, preparing our heart for what's around the corner. And I can't tell you, if I'm just honest, how many times in my life I've gotten busy, I've just gotten guilty, which tends to stifle prayer, not encourage it. And I have found myself with not my, I've found my heart not yet prepared for the season that is just around the corner. That if I had, if I had had a regular discipline of praying, realizing the reasons of why I'm praying, I would have come to that corner far more prepared in my heart. And so if you're here today and you just wish that you had a better prayer life, may we take the encouragements today of why we pray. And it is all sort of packed in to these simple words, our Father in heaven. It's much more than just a way to address God. Now, Advent is the season of preparation for Christmas. It's sort of this intentional time to focus our hearts on the wonder of the Savior of the world who was born humbly. And despite the fact that corporate Christmas tries to increase the bottom line, By bringing merchandise out right after Halloween, Advent is always four Sundays before Christmas, which is two weeks from today. And I wanted to do an Advent series on the Lord's Prayer because I think this prayer helps us capture the wonder of the first Advent while we look forward to the beauty 
of the second advent. And that's ultimately where we are, isn't it? It's between the advents. Advent means coming, and we celebrate the first coming of Christ at Christmas. We look forward to the second advent where Christ will come again. And so we celebrate the first advent of Christ, and yet at the same time anticipate the second advent when Christ will come again. And so as we close today and as we think about and begin to prepare our hearts for Christmas, as we look forward to Advent, I want to leave you with just a few thoughts, thoughts that begin with a quote from theologian N.T. Wright. He says this, we live between Advent and Advent, between the first great Advent, the coming of the Son into the world, and the second Advent, where we shall come again, where he shall come again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And that's why Advent is sometimes quite confusing. Preparing for the birth of Jesus and at the same time preparing for the time when God will make all things new. When the whole cosmos has its exodus from slavery. And that apparent confusion, that overlap between the first and the second advents is actually what Christianity is all about. It's celebrating the decisive victory of God in Jesus Christ over Pharaoh over the Red, and the Red Sea, over sin and death. And yet looking for and working for and longing for. For and praying for the full implementation of that decisive victory. The Lord's Prayer again says this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We live between the advents. We come for our daily and heavenly bread. We come for our daily and final forgiveness. We come for our daily and ultimate deliverance. We come to celebrate God's kingdom now and we pray for it to come soon. And when we call God Father, we are called to step out as God's children into a world full of pain, malice, evil, and darkness. But if as God's, as the people of the living creator God, we respond to the call to become his sons and his daughters, and if we take the risk of calling him father, then we are also called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. 